chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We will take a break from Ephesians starting next week as the season of Advent begins, as we celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will finish with a few more sermons in Ephesians in January. And teens, young people, youth, kids here that are left, I want to again remind you to pick up an outline perhaps. You can fill in the blanks, take a couple notes, or just listen and focus to receive God's word. Parents, please continue to help your children and teenagers to do that right now with CM starting, children's ministry starting for the younger kids. This is a great opportunity to refocus on God's word and receive from the living God for you and for your children, elementary school age and up that they might benefit in their souls. I know you want that, and we want that as well. Let's prepare to worship God through his word by praying for the illumination of the Spirit. Spirit of God, we do, we ask you to open the eyes of our hearts, that we would behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word, even now. Help us to understand apply, and leave here helped by you. Grant this, we ask you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please follow along as Sung reads Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. At first, I want to address the fact that in speaking to bond servants, the apostle is addressing slaves in this passage, and slavery in the Bible can be troubling Understandably so. So here's the historical context. Slavery was a fact of life in the Roman Empire in the first century. It is estimated there were 60 million slaves in the empire at this time. Now, you could become a slave or a bondservant by being captured in war, going into debt, or you might be born into this situation. So for some... This served as a kind of bankruptcy. There was no chapter 7 or 11. It was really a form of indentured servanthood, if you're familiar with that, kind of an indentured servanthood. A slave could earn their freedom, and some chose this pathway of life, lacking other options. 
The point is, slavery in the Roman Empire was very different than the brutal chattel slavery of Africans so sadly practiced in our country and in other places. Slavery in first century Rome was not the race-based, treat people as mere property approach as was practiced in our country. So it is very hard for me to understand certain Christian leaders today who tried to defend or minimize the pain and tragedy of chattel slavery as it was practiced here. The Bible does not condone it in the least, nor should we. In fact, the apostle takes a radical approach to slavery in his day. Look at verse 9. He says, Masters, Masters, stop your threatening. Just feel the, the apostolic authority addressing these masters. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, your slave's master, and yours is in heaven, reigning over you, and that there is no partiality with him. He addresses slaves and masters with equality, both as full members of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. Read the book of Philemon for a living, beautiful example of this. So the apostle did not seek to abolish the practice of slavery in the first century. I'm not sure how he would have done so. But he did undermine the practice with the logic of the gospel, with the logic of the good news. The good news that takes slaves and masters and makes them brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're hearing my voice this morning and you've not believed that good news, I just pause here to urge you to do so. Whatever your station, whatever your situation in life, this is God become man, born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying in your place, receiving the just judgment of God for your sins, if you believed, rising from the grave, ascending back to heaven from where we await his return. And if you turn to him right now, if you turn from going your own way and trust that Savior, his life, death, and resurrection, your sins will be taken away. Your soul will be cleansed. You'll be right with God, and you will know God now and for eternity. So turn and believe this powerful good news that is being applied here, undermining the practice of slavery in the first century. That's the historical context. What about for us today? I, I'm not at all minimizing the sad, tragic form of slavery that is seen in human trafficking today. But I'm assuming that none of us here works in a kind of legally binding arrangement that these slaves experience, these bond servants experience. But we can make application. When you get up tomorrow, you do some kind of work. It might be work in the home. It might be work outside the home. You might be working as a student. That might be your vocation as a student. You might be retired. You might be unemployed right now. But you keep house or your yard or maintain certain things. Look, all of us get up tomorrow and do some kind of work. And that's the angle for application. That you would ask yourself, how do I think about my work? 
How do I think about the work I do tomorrow? Maybe you work in the military or for the government, and you face forms of inefficiency, and it's very discouraging for you. Or you work for a larger company, and you feel like a small, tiny cog in a massive machine, and you wonder, what difference am I making? Or maybe for you, work has been reduced to a paycheck. It's merely about money in the bank, money in the retirement account, and nothing more. Or you're a student and you're thinking of your work. Why do I have to take this class? Why must I do this assignment? I can't wait to graduate. I can't wait to get out of school. Or you take care of your responsibilities in the home and you are thinking, I have to do it all over again tomorrow, another pile of laundry. And you're wondering, what's the point? Look, whether you work in the home, outside the home, as a student, retiree, or are pleasant, presently unemployed, you do some form of work. And this passage has a Godward vision that can transform how you think about your work, how you do your work, and why. I would sum up that Godward vision with this simple sentence. Work unto Christ, seeking to please Christ, for you will be rewarded by Christ. I hope and pray we catch that vision today. That you are to work unto Christ, seeking to please Christ, for, for you will be rewarded one day by Christ. Let's split that sentence up into three parts and see it from this passage. First, work unto Christ. Work unto Christ. Look at verse 5 again. Bond servants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, not out of dread for the work or dread for the master, but the sense here is of care and concern to perform the work well. That's the sense of fear and trembling. With a sincere heart, the verse continues, just as he would Christ. Now catch that last phrase, just as he would Christ, the Christian slave here, is to recognize a greater commitment, isn't he? A greater allegiance, that obedience to one's earthly master was really an expression of his commitment to Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? Presumably, most slaves did not have a lot of choice about what they did. Presumably, they did a lot of things that we could classify as drudgery. And yet, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Obey just as you would Christ. Would that not have a transforming effect on the slave's view of their work? Shouldn't it have a transforming effect on our view of our work? Just as you would Christ means there is no sacred, secular dichotomy when it comes to your work. We are all tempted, I think, to carve up our lives into two halves. On one side, the sacred half. Church involvement, Sunday attendance, practice of the spiritual disciplines, worship, scripture meditation, prayer, fellowship with other Christians, the, the vertical side of life, the Godward side. And then on the other side, it's the secular side of life 
But we put everything else, including our work, the office work, the construction job, the house cleaning, the school attendance, the homework, the, you might say, the horizontal side of life. No vertical referent, no Godward orientation. It's merely secular. But the Bible destroys that false dichotomy. Think about work being established by God in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, he creates us in his image and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's often called the cultural mandate. Fill the earth and subdue it. That mandate gets put into practice in Genesis 2. We read, the Lord God took the man, took Adam, the first man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Interestingly, the same two verbs used of the priests later on. To work it and keep it. So God gave us humans work to do before the fall, before our fall into sin. Pre-fall, he creates us as image bearers, and one way we reflect his image is by working. You reflect your creator through your work. Yes, then Genesis 3, the fall into sin brings pain and toil to our work. We, we feel a sense of futility. Now we labor by the sweat of our brow. Now there are thorns and thistles and difficult commutes on the freeway. Yes, work is affected by the fall, but work did not result from the fall. Work itself is good, ordained by God, as we reflect his image and likeness. So there is no sacred secular dichotomy in life including in our work. We are to work in verse 5 just as you would to Christ. We are to study just as you would to Christ. If you work in the home, we are to clean the house, maintain the yard, or whatever your work is, just as you would to Christ. So whatever your form of work that you do, ask yourself, have I put work in some kind of secular box? Have I made my work a secular thing I do? Merely horizontal, I do it out of necessity. No vertical reference. Is work for you just a necessary evil, you might say? See, that's the question for tomorrow morning and every day of your life. Will you, will you put work in some secular category that doesn't exist because all of life is unto him. Instead, get up tomorrow and work unto Christ. But how? How should we work? How? Well, secondly, seeking to please Christ. Work unto Christ. Secondly, seeking to please or glorify, or honor Christ. Verse 6, the apostle continues, not, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. It might be that the apostle invents a couple compound words here. But he's saying, don't work for the approval of man. Don't try to catch the master's eye and curry favored. And don't don't cut corners when he's not looking or she's not looking. Don't cut corners 
when you don't have the boss's eye. Instead, verse 6 says, but as bondservants of Christ. And here's your gospel identity in this passage. As bondservants of Christ, as slaves of Christ, I do think this perhaps is the apostle's favorite self-designation. Later on, look up Romans chapter 1. It's interesting. The apostle refers to himself as slave of Christ, called to be an apostle. It's almost as if slave of Christ was far more important than apostle of Christ. And this title applies to all Christians, all believers on Jesus. We are not our own. We have been purchased at a great price, the blood of God's Son. So you are freed from slavery to sin. When this, whom the Son sets free, you are free indeed. You've been set free from slavery to sin to be a slave of Christ. And with that gospel identity, we work differently. Verse 6 continues, doing the will of God, the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So here's, here's how we now work. From the heart, literally from the soul, or you might say wholeheartedly is the point. And with a good will. Andrew Lincoln translates that, serving with enthusiasm. So instead of trying to catch the boss's favor or cutting corners out of laziness, work wholeheartedly, he says, work with enthusiasm, not grumbling or complaining. Put your heart and soul into it as slaves of Christ. But we have to be careful here that we don't misunderstand. Sometimes we refer to a Protestant work ethic, right? But we boil it down to work hard, be diligent. And this is far more than merely work hard. I mean, to be a truly Protestant work ethic, it must be theologically driven. So catch the theology here. It's doing the will of God. You get up tomorrow, you do the will of God in your work, in your studies. It's God's will rendering service as to the Lord, not to man, vertical, not horizontal. It's to whom driving the how? To whom you work driving how you work. That's an important connection. This is not work to please people, but to please Christ. Not for eye service, but for the eyes of Christ. It's see the big picture. The story is told of when they were building St. Paul's Cathedral in London, one of the workers was asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm chiseling stone. Another worker was asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm building a wall. A third worker was asked, what are you doing? The worker said, I am helping to build St. Paul's Cathedral. And he was working with joy. You got to see the big picture here. Many are calling what we are experiencing in our economy right now the Great Resignation. Have you heard that? The Great Resignation. Bureau of Labor Statistics announced that a record 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in the month of September. 
4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September, seeking to capitalize on the tight labor market. There were 10.4 million unfilled job openings at the end of September. Restaurants, hospitals, retail stores, all facing significant labor shortages. Catherine Dill provides one explanation. In the Wall Street Journal, she says, the pandemic has been going on for so long, it's affecting people mentally and physically. That could be part of it. Others say what happening, what's happening is, quote, a radical rethinking of our relationship to work. They're calling it the great reprioritization instead of great resignation. So perhaps many societal things going on, maybe some good ones, maybe some good rethinking of our priorities. I don't know. But perhaps G.K. Chesterton put his finger a century ago, ago on the greater problem. Chesterton said, quote, we are perishing for want of wonder. Not for want of wonders. We are perishing for want of wonder, want of awe, want of amazement. Not the want of things to be amazed about. Can you relate to that? Have joy and contentment in your work perished for want of wonder? Have grumbling and complaining begun to take over for want of wonder about your work? Look, if so, I have good news for you. Verses 6 and 7 are full of wonder. <laughs> there is no want of wonders here. You work poor per the will of God. Per the will of God, the desire of God, the direction of God, and to the Lord. And so, as you see that, you will work wholeheartedly and with enthusiasm seeking to please him. I recall taking Sung, my dear bride, to the San Diego Symphony one time when there, there was a lecture on the work of Bach, the composer. If you get to the symphony concerts in time, or ahead of time rather, there's a, a little lecture, informative lecture on the piece that's going to be played. And in this lecture, they talked about how Bach composed his music with intricate details that basically no one would notice except for scholars who study these things today. The idea was there was a certain symmetry in this piece, and I don't recall the details, but it was something like there are seven notes here, and then the exact seven notes over here, and certain measures here, and a certain exact same number of measures here, things you'd never catch, but there was this beauty of symmetry Bach had written. Now you have to ask yourself, why would Bach go to all this effort for something that no one else would notice? Well, you may know the answer. At the end of each piece, Bach wrote three letters, S, D, G, for the Latin phrase, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. 
Isn't that working wholeheartedly from the soul with enthusiasm because you're doing the will of God, serving the Lord and not? Man, I think so. Wouldn't it be powerful if at the bottom of every email for your job or on every homework assignment and quiz or over every pile of laundry, or every ditch we dig, or project we complete, whatever your work, you were to write SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. You might try that this week. Practical suggestion. Maybe in your cubicle, or over your computer, or over the laundry machine, or whatever, you take a note card and you write SDGE this week and you see if your attitude is not helped and changed. And remember, friends, as you do this, remember, you are not left to your own power in this way. This passage, again, is flowing out of the command in chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit, as we recited earlier. So this is from the Spirit's filling and empowering. We see instructions on marriage, instructions on parenting, and now instructions related to your work, your vocation. In other words, the Spirit of God wants to empower you and help you to serve wholeheartedly and with enthusiasm. You're not left to your own resources, friends. But why? We've seen something of why already, but there's, there's another why yet. Thirdly, thirdly, you will be rewarded by Christ. Work unto Christ, seeking to please Christ, not by way of eye service. Thirdly, for you will be rewarded Rewarded by Christ. Verse 8. Knowing. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Notice the leveling, the equality again here. That is a remarkable verse. Here's why you work as you do, knowing something, right? Knowing, knowing that whatever good anyone does, ca catch how open-ended that is. Catch how all-inclusive that is. Whatever good anyone does. Has he left anything out? I don't think so. This he will receive back from the Lord, an, an adequate return from the Lord, a reward from the Lord. Colossians 3 says the same thing. In the parallel passage, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing, he says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You see, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Make no mistake about that. But the Bible does not blush to motivate us with future reward. Think about it. How do you measure success when it comes to work? Let's just take, let's take work outside the home for a moment. Usually we measure success in two ways, job title and salary. Got an impressive title? 
got a large salary, we say he or she is quote-unquote successful, do we not? That's why working in the home is so often unappreciated and undervalued in our culture. Because power and wealth define success for us. But listen, apart from this ultimate why of his reward, all other measures of success are going to leave you empty and dry. They're going to wring you out like a towel in the end. I read recently Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and he talks about, in quotes, Charles Colson reflecting on Richard Nixon's landslide victory in the presidential election of 1972. Colson was the political architect of that victory. And Colson paints the picture of Chief of Staff Arch H.R. Haldeman after the victory, arrogant and sullen. He says Nixon, after the victory, was gulping down scotch. But Colson says of himself, he was feeling let down, deflated, a deadness inside of me. Peterson adds, three men at the power pinnacle of the world, not a single note of joy discernible in the room. Isn't that interesting? Colson says, quote, being part of electing a president was the fondest ambition of my life. For three long years, I had committed everything I had, every ounce of energy to Richard Nixon's cause. Nothing else mattered. We had no time together as a family, no social life, no vacations. Then, having in his hands what he set out to gain, having in his hands what he thought was success, he couldn't enjoy it. He was left empty, let down, deflated, a deadness inside of him. But listen, Christ's coming reward can rescue you from that experience. Christ's coming reward, that ultimate why, will not leave you empty, let down, deflated, and dead inside. I, I recognize work is often hard. I recognize work is often disappointing. I was thinking of my good friend Scott Moon, who was grieved over his company laying off many people recently, and appreciating how he so cares about his employees and cares about his coworkers. He was just genuinely burdened and grieved by people. There are tough situations at work. The boss is hard, the pay is low, Tasks around the house are repetitive. Classes seem like a drag. But God, God here wants to open our eyes to the coming reward and define success as he does. When it comes to his people and what his people do, the tasks he's assigned his people, none of them in his eyes are mundane. None of them are insignificant for every dirty diaper change, every quiz studied for, every paper written without plagiarism, every act of ministry done in your retirement, every act of faithfulness in the workplace. He says, here's an adequate return. Here's my 
reward. That is a very different definition of success. That's a definition of success that's looking ahead to a day when King Jesus looks you in the eye, evaluates, and you long to hear, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, is that not success? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, motivated by grace, covered in his blood and righteousness. Not your job title. Not your salary right now. Not anyone's approval, but his. John Cotton, a Puritan, I think, put the effect well. He said, quote, serve God in thy calling. Do it with cheerfulness and faithfulness and a heavenly mind. That's what verse 8 can give you. A heavenly mind. A heavenly mind with a different definition of success granting you profound contentment in your work. Contentment not from ideal circumstances because they don't exist. Contentment from this wonder. Christ will reward you. So friends, ask yourself, why are you working? Get up tomorrow and ask yourself, why am I going to do this? What's my goal? What's my measure of success? Then remind yourself of verse 8. Have a heavenly mind about your work, and then you will, as Cotton said, serve God in thy calling with cheerfulness and faithfulness. I hope, I hope you're seeing the bigger picture. I hope you're catching the, the Godward vision that God wants to give us here. Work unto Christ, your Savior. Seeking to please Christ, not by way of eye service, not as a people pleaser. Seeking to please Him. Writing S, D, and G under everything. For you will be rewarded, most surely, by Christ. Let's pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together to celebrate Him. Would you pray with me?